Our reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Okay, we're talking this morning about uh, righteousness. Righteousness is a moral term about how you've lived. It's really about your moral character. It's about who you are. Uh, it simply means that you've done right by other people and done right by God. You've done right and all you've said the right things, you've done the right things, you've interacted with people the right ways. So everything you've done is right. And so that's what he's talking about here. And he gives us two people uh, in, as in this conversation, two examples. The first is the Pharisee. Now, if you're a student of the Bible and you've grown up in the church, you, you kind of, when you hear the word Pharisee, you think bad guy. These are the bad guys in, in the New Testament. But if you were living during the time of Jesus, you would not have thought that the Pharisees were the bad guys. You would have thought they were the, the examples that you were supposed to follow. These were the cultural good guys. Uh, Pharisaism was started really kind of in the intertestamental times between the Old and New Testament when uh, Israel was sent off into exile because they did not obey the law of God, and the, the big idea laws, not you know, the minutiae, those kind of things. But they just weren't concerned about the things of God for all. And so... Uh, when they came back from exile, the Pharisees and, and, you know, were really about keeping laws to make sure we never go into exile ever again. So they had laws about how to keep laws. I mean, it's just, they, and people would look at them and think, these are fantastic people. So people listening to Jesus as he's talking about the Pharisees here, uh, they're going to, uh, they would have said about the Pharisees, do you hear all the things that this Pharisee is doing? He fasts twice a week, he gives a tenth of everything. Wow, he is an inspiration to us all. And then there's the tax collector. And uh, by unanimous decision, it was a bipartisan vote, uh, he was a dirtbag. Uh, culturally, as people just thought he was, the, everybody thought he was the worst of the worst. It would be a little bit like, in, you know, in our, what's in our minds right now, is a, a Ukrainian siding with the Russians and opposing his own people. It would be a little bit like that in their mindset. This guy is a traitor to God, to his people, to his country. He's a traitor completely. Now, part of that is the way you got to become a, a tax collector. That was a position that you, were, you applied for. Like you went through an application process, and, when, and so you chose this for yourself, despite what everybody else around them, them thought about it. And the way that it worked is uh, tax collectors actually took a flat fee from the area that they were assigned. So whatever flat fee they got, that's what they had to pay the Romans, but they would often take more taxes than that, and so they could keep anything they took over the flat tax that they paid to Rome. And so there was a lot of corruption that was involved. And so there's a unanimous bipartisan decision, dirt bag, right? Uh, 
And so up until this point, when Jesus is talking about these two men, uh, the people are, are around or would be applauding. You know, when Jesus talks about, it'd be a little like the State of the Union, right? People are listening. And when he says that uh, when the Pharisee tithes a tenth of everything, people would stand and cheer, yay. And then when he says, and then the, the tax collector, he admits he's a sinner. Yeah, he's a sinner. Yes, this is exactly right. And then Jesus flips the script on him. He flips the script. And this is what Jesus ends up saying. He says that the man, this, the tax dirt bag, he's the one who went home justified. Look at verse 14. He, Jesus said, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. And this is the big twist that no one expected because they all expected the Pharisee to be the good guy of the story a little bit the way that many of us would. But it's exactly the opposite of what they expected and what we expect, and it's this. God justifies the wicked person. This is exactly what Romans chapter 4, verse 5 says. It says, To the man who does not perform religious works, the Pharisee, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, the tax collector, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. So what does he mean about justified, righteous, faith, all of these things? Why the tax collector? That's what we're talking about this morning. Just a simple idea is God justifies the wicked. Okay, what does that word justify mean, justifies? It means this. It's, a, it, it, it's really a legal declaration from a judge in a court case that you have met all your obligations. So the word righteous or righteousness refers to the character quality, but the word justified that Jesus uses in this to say this man went home justified is a legal declaration. You've done everything right. You are righteous. So to be justified means, one, that you, there, there's, there's no record of any wrongdoing. There's no red in your ledger. As far as the, all the accounts go, you are innocent of any crimes. That's the first thing, to be justified. The second is this, is that a person has done everything right, even going above and beyond what was required. And so this is what Jesus means when he says uh, that a person is justified. They're innocent, and they have gone above and beyond doing the things that they were supposed to do. And so what, when God is pronouncing this person justified, he said there's no record of any wrongdoing, and this person has gone above and beyond in all the areas. But I want you to notice two things that are here in this passage. First one is this. Jesus said in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. Now that's a regular that's irregular in this way, is if you've read through the, the Bible and you see the ending, there's a, there's a judgment that takes place towards the end of uh, the book of Revelation, and it talks about books being opened, and everybody stands before there, and there's a judgment that takes place. That's at the end of a person's life, at the end of time, that's when the judgment takes place, because the judgment is about the whole of a person's life, right, from beginning to end, and so there's no way that the, the verdict could be given in the middle of the life, it has to be done at the end of the life. But for this man right here, the verdict, Jesus said, came in the middle of his life, before the end of his life. And so what that means is God has made the verdict that this person is justified, righteous, acceptable in the middle of his life, which means he lives the rest of his life knowing what the verdict is. I'm justified. I'm righteous in God's sight. I'm completely acceptable to God in my life now. I'm not waiting to hear the verdict. The verdict took place this very day that I confessed I was a sinner. 
I need his mercy. He showed it to me in the middle. You got that? That's the first thing. That's, that's irregular. The second thing that's irregular is this, is this cannot be based on his own merit because he himself said, I am a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. So what he's doing simply is entrusting himself to God. When the tax collector admits, I'm a sinner, he's saying to God, you were right all along. I made myself believe that you were the problem because I wanted to live life on my terms, but now I'm convinced you are the solution. I want life on your terms. You were right, and I was wrong, and I need you. That's the beginning of faith. That's the beginning of faith is saying, you were right, and I was wrong, and I want life on your terms, and I'm guilty according to your terms. So that's the beginning of faith. But you also believe this. You believe that God is the kind of God who is completely holy, before whom you are completely guilty. But he's also a God who is utterly compassionate and gracious and kind and completely forgives guilty people who come to him in faith. He forgives me. So this man believed and entrusted himself to God. That's what he did. That's all he did to be declared righteous. So in faith, he asked God himself to, and in faith, he asked God to take away his sin. He asked God for grace. We, we translate what his, his prayer to the Lord is, God be merciful to me, a sinner. But more accurately, what he's saying is, atone for me, a sinner. Because the word he uses that we translate as mercy, it could be translated as mercy, but it could also be translated as that word atone. And, and that has to do with the temple sacrifice in the Old Testament where people would come and lay their hands on an animal. The animal would be killed on their behalf because the animal was symbolically taking away their sin. So he's standing before the Lord and he's saying, atone for my sin, offer satisfaction, offer payment, take away the debt that I owe, take away the, the guilt that I owe by sacrifice. So that's what he's saying. He's saying, Lord, place it on another on my behalf. And the reality is, is God answered that prayer by the very person who's telling the story, by Jesus. Our sins were placed upon Jesus when he went to the cross, when he went to the tree. And this is what we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That's who? So that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. That's us. Or to say it a different way, righteous Jesus was counted as sinful you, and sinful you is now counted as righteous Jesus. So justified, as it's used here, is not a declaration about our lives or his life. It's a declaration about Jesus' life and his death on our behalf. So what does it mean to be justified? There's an old document called the, um, the Westminster Confession of Faith and Westminster Shorter Catechism. And at one point it asks the question, what is justification? And this is what it says. Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all of our sins, pardons all of our sins, and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ credited to us and received by faith alone. That's it. Let's take that apart a little bit, because this is really what Jesus is talking about. So in justification, all of our sins are forgiven. When God makes that declaration, that verdict of justification, we're justified, he takes away sin's debt so that a person is fully forgiven. 
no matter what you've done, no matter how long ago it was, how many times, any of those things, all of, all of those kind of qualifications we might put on it, just completely take it away, we're forgiven. I have a, uh, a guy I know in ministry up in Greenville, South Carolina, named Brian Haybig, and uh, Brian tells a story of when he was younger, um, finding a book from the library uh, that was long overdue. You know, you put something in a closet, you put something on a shelf, you slide something on a couch under a bed, you go back, clean up later, and it's like, oh my goodness, this is 1977, how much do I owe for this? What in the world? So he was young at this point, and uh, he found this book, and he all of a sudden started to have a panic attack. You know, he's in agony over this. He's like, how long is this? How much money is this going to cost me? And then he thought about the librarian. You know, you've got these stereotypes of this dour librarian coming and wagging her finger. Uh, some of the best people I know are librarians, but, you know, that's beside the point. So that's what you picture in your mind is this person wagging her finger and having to endure that. So he finally, he finally faced the hard choice and he made the hard decision, I've got to take the library book back because otherwise it's stealing. So he took it to the library and he presented it, you know, kind of like, oh, here it is. It weighs 3,000 pounds as he's setting it on the counter. What he didn't know until he set it down and she looked at it, she said, it's free day. <laughs> Which means anybody who brings in a book, no matter how overdue it is, no matter what book it is, no matter for how long, it's free day. So you don't owe anything whatsoever. Jesus is free day. He is. Not because uh, it's one day in time, but because he's the only way that we become right with God. Salvation is found in no one else because there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved, but he's the only name under heaven that can save us, and he does. So anybody who comes to faith in Jesus uh, comes on free day. We come to the free gift. We leave forgiven with none of our sin hanging over us, none of the guilt hanging over us. I am completely forgiven. But at the same time, you know, not only can I leave forgiven, this is the beautiful thing about the gospel. I don't have to leave forgiven. I can stay. I can stay in the presence of this God, which is really what Christianity is about, is being restored and reconciled to that God, who he is and his love and his glory and his majesty. So in justification, Jesus takes our sinful debt from us on himself, and he paid for it at the cross. But if you notice the other part when I was talking about justification, he gives us his exemplary life. He gives us his perfect life. And this is why the life of Christ is so... That's why Jesus didn't show up on the cross and just pay for sins. He lived a perfect life. He was living a perfect life for your sake and my sake. He died the death we should have died, and he lived the life we should have lived. And because of that, when we're in Christ, we have his righteousness. We are clothed in his righteousness, and we can enter fully into the presence of God, which is a wonderful gift. Here's a picture of that. Um, you know, everybody has their hobbies. Everybody has their stuff they talk about all the time. Uh, one of mine is Disney. Uh, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an animator at Disney. I worked at Disney. Um, this was back in 89, I think. I, I asked Paul, I said, have I told this story in here? He said, you told it sometime, I don't remember. And I was like, I don't remember either, so I'm just going to tell it. Um, and so I worked at, uh, uh, one of the things I got to do, which was really cool, is I worked at a movie premiere for Dick Tracy. Uh, I would not suggest that movie to anybody, but, uh, you know, there it is. 
uh, it had all the stars. Madonna was there, and Warren Beatty was there, and um, you know everybody who was in the movie was there. And uh, my job was to work security. And there was just a, you know one general rule that they gave us is there were two groups of people there that could be there that night at the Hollywood Studios uh, for the movie premiere. One group had on a blue badge, and the, and the little blue badge to let you know you could come into the park and you could stand at a distance and watch all of the festivities while they're happening, but you couldn't enter in. That's the blue badge. But everybody with a gold badge uh, could come in and had access to everything. So not only could they walk, watch from a distance, they could come in and stand up close and see all of these things, which is really kind of fun, right? And so I'm there guarding the velvet rope to make sure nobody comes under it, and I'm doing my nice Disney smile, and I've got my Disney name tag, and I'm standing there. And at one point, you know, there are people just standing around taking pictures of all these movie stars, and this man started to slip under the velvet rope. And I stepped in front, and I said, excuse me, sir, I'm sorry, only guests with a gold badge can come into the velvet roped area. And he pointed his badge, he's like, I'm, I'm supposed to have a gold badge. I said, I'm sorry, sir, but only guests with a gold badge or can get in here. I'm going to have to ask you to step back under the rope. So he got under the, the rope, and he started giving me what for, right? Because I'm supposed to be back there. I'm, I'm with the press. I'm supposed to be taking pictures. I've my editor, all of these things. And I said, I'm so sorry, sir, but you've got on a blue badge, and you don't have a gold badge. I can't allow you into this area. And so he, you know, he called me a nincompoop and other things that we can't say in church. And, um, <laughs> you know, and all the other guests are standing around horrified. Oh, goodness. And he said, call your supervisor over here. So I called my super, super, Jeff, can you come over here for a second? And Jeff came over and he stood and listened politely as this man, you know, uh, said some unkind things about me. And uh, we both stood there and did our Disney smiles for the guy as he was doing it. And, and when he got through, Jeff said, I'm sorry, sir, but you have a blue badge. You're going to have to stay on that side of the velvet rope, right? So what's the point? Because it has to have a point, right? It's an illustration. Is uh, Jesus is the gold badge. That's the only way you get in. Jesus is the gold badge. He's the only one who has direct access to the holy presence of God without any fear because he's fully and completely righteous. And he gives us a gold badge when we come to faith in him. He gives the above and beyond perfect life as our own. It's, it's not ours, but it's counted as ours because of him. And because we have been given his righteousness, we have full access to all the blessings that are in the Christian life because of him. Right? What's the blue badge? The blue badge is works of righteousness. It gets you in proximity, but you can't enter in. It has benefits, because if you're keeping rules and laws that are found in the Bible for all the wrong reasons, but if you're keeping them, it keeps you from self-destructive lifestyles, it keeps you from immorality, but it doesn't bring you into the presence of God. It can't, because it's never righteous enough. The blue badge person thinks it should be enough, but it's not. It can't make a person right before God. Only Jesus can do that. So the tax collector didn't depend on the blue badge of religion. If you look at the passage, that's what the Pharisee's doing. He's saying, here's all the things I've been doing. Here's all the things that I don't do. I should be able to get in here. And Jesus says, no. The tax collector simply approached God and said, I have nothing nothing that should make you want to forgive a person like me. I come not because of the person I am, but because of the person you are. I come believing that you are kind and gracious to someone like me. That's all I can plead. That's all I have. So to come to Jesus saying, 
have mercy on me, a sinner. I have nothing, no resume, no excuses, no promises. That's all I have. That's how you have peace with God, is to say, I take what you give. It's a gift. I keep, I stop, I've stopped bringing you my trash. I've stopped bringing you the tickets. I've stopped bringing you all these things that don't work. I accept from you what you have to offer, which is Jesus. And this is why uh, Romans 4 says, And to the one who does not work but believes God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Now, talk to maybe Christians in here for just a little bit. Uh, for years I've talked to Christians who, uh, when they fall into a sin, they go into a kind of a deep depression. They feel awful, they feel fearful, they feel awful about themselves. And it's because they say, I fell into sin. And as I talk to people, what comes out is this kind of attitude of, I thought I was beyond this. I thought that I was better than this. And they're really frustrated to know that they need Jesus all over again. Right? But they never stopped needing Jesus. Right? So let me say three things very clearly for just a moment. Number one, a current act of sin does not make you worse of a sinner. We think if I sin today, I'm worse than I was yesterday. My self-estimation has gone down. But listen, that sin was in you yesterday and the day before that and the year before that. It was there inside of you. If I had a sin detector, like an iron ore, like a metal detector, I could have like, it would have shown up on the metal detector, right? The, the sin detector would have shown all these things. And so it was there all along. It just hadn't manifested itself, right? There hadn't been enough erosion in your life for this to manifest. You're no different than you were, like me. I'm no different than I was yesterday or the day before or the day before that. I have Jesus. That's all I have to make me right with God. It's all I'll ever need. And I should not be surprised if I sin. Of course I sin. But there's more grace in Jesus than there is sin in me. Am I growing? Yes, I'm growing as a person. But do I ever grow beyond the need of the righteousness of Jesus? Absolutely not. I need that every day. So that's the first. The second thing is this. You do not have the ability to detect God's emotions towards you the way that a radio picks up radio waves. We often think that the way that I feel about myself after I've blown it in sin must be the way that God feels about me. He, he must hate me right now. Right? And the reason is not because um, we see God as He is, but because we see God as we are. And that's the way I would respond to somebody. That surely is the way that God would respond to me. But what you feel are really your emotions, your embarrassment at your failure, your shame at your weakness, uh, your humiliation because of the way other people are responding to you. We presume that God feels exactly what we feel about ourselves, but that's wrong. God sees you as you are in Christ and has compassion on you because that sin is rearing its head again in your life. God loves you as much now as he ever has or ever will in Jesus. Number three, Christian growth is way more than overcoming one known sin. Most of us have a list of maybe one sin or five sins. It's a short number of sins. And that's the way that we measure how we are doing as a Christian. But what, the, what, we, what we see is that all these other sins lurk under the surface. It looks worse to me because these one to five things are things I'm constantly struggling with in my life. Um, and what happens is it shapes my view of God, shapes my demeanor, shapes my mood, shapes my, everything about me. But that ought to be shaped by the gospel of Jesus alone. 
right? It should, I shouldn't base it on how I'm doing in these one to five areas. I just have sin. So Christian growth involves draw, draw, drawing close to Jesus and not aiming at successful morality. If you aim at Jesus, you'll, get, you'll feel God's acceptance. You'll feel his love. You'll feel his peace. You'll have joy because of that, because it's all based on Jesus. If you're aiming at morality, you'll end up in self-righteousness or shame. One of those two things. So our struggle in the Christian life is not the struggle to be a better person. It's a struggle to remain deeply rooted and established in Jesus alone. Being rooted in Jesus means that we stop doing anything to prove God's love to ourselves. Jesus has done that. We stop doing anything to get God to bless us. Jesus has already done that. We stop trying to be righteous before God. Jesus has more than done that. Being rooted in Jesus makes us feel deeply better even when we're at our worst because we know that we, uh, we have been and are loved at our worst. So what Jesus wants us to see in this passage is it's the really broken person, the person that we unanimously, all of us, uh, bipartisan say, this person is a dirtbag, but this person left justified because he's admitting these things and accepting the righteousness that came from God. So people are declared righteous when they stop trying to be righteous without God and accept righteousness as a gift from God. This is in verse 9, because this parable is not just about the tax collector. It's about the Pharisee. So in verse 9, it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So the first thing to notice in that is he says, it's, it, this is not a parable spoken to Pharisees. This is a parable spoken to some. So it could be anybody. It could be you, it could be me, it it's, could be anybody. And the second thing is, uh, he says, they trusted in, trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Those aren't two different things, like point one and point two. Those are the same thing. Because if you trust in your own righteousness, you treat other people with contempt. So how would you know if you're trusting in your righteousness or in the righteousness of Jesus alone? It's by the way you treat other people. You have contempt for them or you don't. I mean, look at what the Pharisee does. He compares himself to others. Um, I thank you. I'm not like other people. And then he goes through their litany of sins. And then he does this wonderful thing of uh, virtue signaling where he talks about the things that he does, right? So he's looking at other people and despising them because they don't do what he does and they do things he would never do. So contempt for other people reveals the loss of dependence and trust in and intimacy with the true God. It's a sure sign that a person is no longer trusting in the work of Christ, but trusting in something else. I don't need a savior. I can save myself is what the Pharisee would think. So contempt reveals someone who may not truly know God or has forgotten the grace of God in their lives. You know, think about this uh, Pharisee for just a little bit. The Old Testament, which the Pharisee would have used, is a record not of rules that people kept, but it's a, it's a record of the overwhelming repetitive failures of other people, of people to, not to do what is right, and of God's unwavering faithfulness to forgive people who come to him and acknowledge they have done wrong. Think about what's at the heart of the Old Testament worship. At the heart of the Old Testament worship is the sacrificial system. 
And in the sacrificial system, you're, you're coming into the presence of God saying, I am a sinner, and something has to die to atone for me. That's at the center of the worship of Israel during that time. I'm a sinner. That's the heart of Old Testament worship. This is the message of the Bible. Religion can't save you. God gave laws not to show us, here's how you can be right with me, but to say, here's why you need to come to me to receive the righteousness. So what this Pharisee claimed was to worship the true God. But by his actions, he shows that he doesn't know the true God, how holy he is, how gracious he is. So he might as well have been worshiping Zeus or Odin because he was not coming before the true God. So Jesus told this parable to some, he says, who were confident of their own righteousness. And he's talking to us as Christians. He's talking to everybody, but he's talking to Christians. He's talking to our culture, right? We are a culture of contempt, right? We call it Twitter, but we're a culture of contempt. You see it on bumper stickers, you see it in social media, you see it all over the place. We're a culture in which we have contempt for other people. And we as Christians can fall into that very easily. And so this is a challenge to us. Some find themselves feeling ashamed and guilty. They, they, they come in by grace. They feel ashamed, they feel guilty. They come in and they receive God's grace. They feel like they're getting their lives cleaned up and somehow this quickly morphs into Jesus and morality. Right? So, and Jesus plus morality means that Jesus is now the mascot for your morality. But it's really about the morality, and that's where you condemn other people. Or we, it's Jesus plus traditions, or it's Jesus plus politics, or it's Jesus plus something. So we end up despising people for the thing that they don't have that we feel like we have. And this is what he's challenging here for all of us. He's saying, if you have contempt for anybody, it's because you don't really see your need and you're not fully and completely resting on Jesus. It's Jesus and something else, which is shown by our contempt for others. And one of the best things that can happen is for us to lose all confidence in our own righteousness. I had a, a young man years ago that I knew named Oliver, and Oliver was a Christian in a fraternity. And uh, in conversations with me, he talked about how hard it was to be a Christian witness in a fraternity. Because people were drinking, you know, he didn't drink because he you know, was underage, and, and guys were doing things they ought not to be doing with people of the opposite sex, and he didn't do those kinds of things, you know, people of the opposite sex. And uh, it was really hard to keep his witness in that environment, right? So on the, when he turned 21, it was kind of a tradition uh, for them to go to their fraternity house that was on the lake, and he went on to the fraternity house with everybody. And since he was 21, he uh, had his first alcoholic beverage, and then another, and then another, and then another. And uh, uh, he was the life of the party for a while there. And uh, at some point, this is also a tradition on your birthday, is they would pick you up and they would throw you into the lake. And so his public drunkenness and everything he was doing was on full view for everybody to see. So they hoisted him up on their shoulders and they carried him out to the lake and they chunked him into the lake. And uh, what a beautiful scene, right? <laughs> All your friends loving you and drowning you. It's good. Um, and so Oliver and I had been meeting for about two or three months and kind of going through some discipling and things. And... Uh, that week, I didn't know any of this had happened, but he was sitting across from me. He seemed distracted. He seemed depressed. He seemed like 
uh, you know, he, it seemed like Winnie the Pooh with all the stuffing out of him. He just was, you know, like sitting on the couch, like, <laughs> I'm the worst person. I said, okay, Oliver, what, what is going on? You are not your usual self. So he told me the story about what had happened, and he said, Stephen, I've blown my witness. I have blown my witness to my fraternity. And I said, no, you haven't. Your witness just began. Because all this time, you've been holding up a cardboard cutout version of yourself in full technicolor. It looks beautiful. It's you smiling at everybody, and this is what Christian life is like. It's, I'm happy all the time. I've got Jesus. Look at me. I don't make mistakes. It's perfect. Edges are perfect. Have you seen me? I'm great. And so that night when you got picked up and thrown into the lake and it was full on full display for everybody else, Jesus said, hey, hand me that cardboard cutout. Just tore it to pieces and threw it into the water and it just sank to the bottom. And I said... So now is when your witness begins. Because this whole time you've been witnessing to how good you are in front of all of your people and you've told them that's what it means to be a Christian. So for the first time you get to tell them what it means to be a sinner with Jesus as the only hero of your life. So he went away and uh, came back the next week and he said, you're not going to believe what happened. He said, I've had so many of my fraternity brothers who had never talked to me before come into my room and talk about that night and say, dude, that was awesome. They never would talk to me before, but then I began to talk to them about my faith and talk to them about Jesus and talk about my failings and talk about I'm just like everybody else. I'm not better. I'm just like everybody else, and I need a Savior just as much as they need a Savior. He said, my witness has begun. How did the tax collector's life change? Well, Jesus didn't talk about it. Because that's not the point of the parable, is it? The point of the parable is not trusting our own righteousness. Ever. Who went home justified? The one who's not trusting in his own righteousness. The one who didn't trust in his works. The one who didn't trust his character. The one who didn't trust in his reputation. The one who didn't trust in his efforts, but leaned fully and completely upon God for a righteousness that comes from him and not one that we produce ourselves the one who trusted God alone for grace, that person went home justified. Let me pray for us.